0: Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation.
1: So um, we're really happy to welcome Renee Rapel and Patrick Heron here today, and we're gonna be discussing gender-affirming care with a focus on youth. Um, so Renee, thank you for coming, and can you please tell us about your background and your the work that you do?
2: Yeah, sure, so thank you so much for having me. Um, And thank you for also taking time out to to talk about trans and non-binary young people. Um, This is an issue that's getting a lot of attention, whether really positive and loving, or really negative and harmful. Um, So I I really appreciate y'all. Writing this as as important and necessary conversation. Um, So my name is Renee Riopal. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Um, I'm a licensed clinical social worker by training who's been working with LGBTQ and HIV-affected folks clinically for the last 10 years. Um, I currently am a mental health therapist at a major hospital in the Bronx. Um, I'm in private practice um, and I also am a group's clinician for the Ackerman Institute for the Families Gender and Families Project which uh, has groups for kids as young as five through adulthood who are trans, non-binary, gender expansive. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
3: Patrick, can you tell us about yourself? Uh, Yes, thank you for having me. My name is Patrick Herron. I'm a bioethicist and medical educator. Um, I live and work in the Bronx, New York. Uh, I've been working in the field of bioethics for about 15 to 20 years. Um, I have a doctorate in clinical bioethics, and uh, some of the areas that I'm particularly interested in um, include pediatric ethics. Um, and, And part of that goes back to my original career, Uh, when i started out after college was as a special education teacher and that's when i first began to uh, think about a lot of the challenges facing the students and the parents and the communities that i was teaching in Um, i didn't really have the the language of bioethics at that time Um, so it was somewhat serendipitous that i found my way towards uh, working in higher ed and then medical education uh, which is where i was introduced to the whole field Uh, so it's sort of been a, a really unique journey. Um, I, I work in a, a medical school, academic medical center, and I'm sort of one of those non-traditional faculty members. I'm not a physician by training, um, but I am involved in the education and training of uh, physicians and future physicians, which I, I enormously love and value. Um, and, and my, my work uh, at the medical school where I, I currently am, um, I chair the LGBTQIA health curriculum. Um, and. With that hat and the hat of overseeing the medical student bioethics education program, uh, I was able to kind of create some space to bring together um, these topics that are very important uh, to our patients and the community that we serve, but also uh, has given me this really wonderful opportunity to work more closely with um, people like Renee uh, who are doing great work and uh, to really help them uh, contribute to the field of bioethics, which is, you know, I've always seen as uh, a strength of the field of bioethics is that it's interprofessional, um, in, and, and that's a strength. And I think bring to people like social workers and community advocates um, and uh, physicians and nurses um, and everyone who, has a, who is a stakeholder uh, is a really wonderful opportunity.
1: Thank you. So um, before we sort of delve in, I do want to ask more about my medical um, school curriculum. But um, can you outline for us what gender affirming care is and what gender dysphoria are?
2: Sure, I can I can speak to that a little bit. Um, so I think maybe the first thing to be really clear on is different terms mean different things to different people. Um, however, um, I will do my best to, to kind of give a, a large overview Um, So not all transgender or non-binary people have gender dysphoria, not all people with gender dysphoria are trans or non-binary But gender dysphoria um, Which has been used as a a mental health diagnosis, which is is largely something that was created by um, by cisgender people by people who are not transgender Um, but it's now used to describe a feeling of incongruence between Um, your gender as you experience it internally versus your gender, how it is seen externally. Um, So I often akin this to like, um, you know, trying to write with your non-dominant hand, right? Like you can do this and also it's uncomfortable for everyone and it doesn't feel great. And there are times where it's really frustrating and awful and there are times where maybe it wouldn't bother you so much depending on what you were doing, um, but it it can be there. Um, and so what's come from um, what's been um, created in like u.s um, western white medicine as a a mental health diagnosis right gender dysphoria from that has come the medical community um, ways in which to help someone affirm um, the gender that they're experiencing so this can be things like um, the you know name and pronoun use this can be things like um pubertal blockers or gender affirming hormones this could be things like surgical care this could be things like how somebody's gender is seen through legal documentation um but it can can also be like how you you know put yourself together today and how you cut your hair and what piercings you have and all sorts of things can feel really lovely and gender affirming
1: in terms of the medical school curriculum um why did you pick this topic? I mean, obviously it's an interest of yours Patrick and you had a lot of connections, but um medical students have a lot of um things to cover in medical school and we we want them to be aware of, you know, the influence of social determinants of health on medical outcomes, the issues of structural barriers that may inhibit access to care and adherence and attendance at appointments and things like that. So Given the limited number of hours that medical students are getting ethics training, why, why did you pick this? Was it because you felt there was confusion um, in the medical field around these issues? Or was it the sort of diverse ethical dilemmas that come up that, that you wanted to highlight?
3: It's a great question. And it was something I was asked not by our students who were very enthusiastic and supportive, when we began to start having these conversations with them. Um, I was asked by colleagues because I think anyone who works in the field of uh, medical education or any health professions education, there is always a a constant pressure and tension as to, you know, you have precious little time to educate and how will you use that time? So, um, and, and there's many topics that we unfortunately don't have enough. I feel we don't have enough time to dedicate to. So I think, Within uh, our medical school, um, there has been a strong emphasis in integration of topics um, and and also the clinical application of topics. so we we don't tend to focus on uh, moral philosophy, but we really think about a clinical ethics approach. And because of the community that we serve, uh, which is very diverse, which is underserved, uh, which are many challenges for the patients and communities that you know uh, we, uh, interact with here in the Bronx, um, we are able to draw from our own students' experiences who have highlighted for us during their clerkship training where they have felt really challenged. And and within that curriculum, um, we do case conferences and, and we've been doing a case conference in our pediatric clerkship. And this question came up many times and I realized that I'm in a very um, a special and privileged position in the medical school that I was able to hear the concerns from students and then to kind of take a step back and look at how well are we preparing our students for their clinical training and I realized that like many other medical schools um, we were not adequately providing content for our students uh, to address these issues uh, when they arise in the clinical setting. Um, so when people ask well you know why this i think well the important thing about discussions with gender-affirming care is that if we have a um, institution if we have a culture in which gender-affirming care is not only embraced but advocated for the quality of care for all children all adolescents immensely improves so this is not a special population that we're only uh, addressing this is improving the culture and the educational environment um, for, for all of our students. And when we look at the research to show, uh, you know, is gender affirming care effective? Well, we know it to be. Um, we know it has a significant impact in reducing um, suicidal ideation and self-harm in um, uh, children and teenagers and young adults who are either transgender or gender expansive. Um, and, and I think As a a bioethicist and as an educator, I felt we had an ethical duty to not only um, prepare our students for this type of work, but also to create a culture in medicine where our future patients and current patients um, are going to receive high quality care regardless of their gender identity, regardless of their gender expression. And, And this is where I feel that there's so much of the work around healthcare care disparities. Um, I think there's a, a misnomer that we're only focusing on some people. And the truth is we're focusing on everybody. We're trying to create greater equity in how people are provided care so that we're not, um, we're, we're dismantling, we're trying to mitigate barriers that have systemically uh, been erected over the years and uh, unfortunately are, are very challenging to take down and, and remove.
1: And what kind of reactions have you had from students and um are are there other clinicians that are reading your materials and resources i thought your your materials and all your readings were amazing and uh, so informative I, i learned a lot um what kind of reactions have you had from your your students the
3: the students um so within medical education one of the challenges is um, you know, do you, do you guide yourself through the course evaluation that you get at the end of the year? Um, and, and we take their course evaluations very seriously, but we also do a lot of focus groups with students. Um, uh, part of my, one of my roles at the medical school is I, I serve as chair of our LGBTQIA health curriculum. So we're frequently asking our students, um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? How could we do this better? Uh, are we preparing you well? Uh, for these challenges as they arise. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, and what's been really interesting is that a lot of our faculty, who initially I think felt a little bit of discomfort because this is an area outside of their scope of practice, they themselves have become uh, better educated and have really seen the value in engaging in these complex, nuanced conversations with our students. and what i've been really personally satisfying is that over the years um a number of faculty have who are not even involved in our curriculum have come forward to disclose and share like you know i have a family member i have a child and and this is really great i really appreciate what you're doing because as a parent or as a sibling um i saw how much they struggled and i wish their doctors had been better informed and i wish their clinical staff had been more welcoming and inclusive. So, I mean, that's the kind of feedback that I feel is uh, I- incredibly important um, for us. You know, when we're, we're when we're in a position of uh, educational leadership, um, to really see the impact on a personal level um, is incredibly rewarding. Um, but I think you know, to for, as someone who is uh, a member of the LGBT community but as a cisgender person, um, I'm always very cognizant of the fact that I speak with a lot of friends and family members who are um, gender expansive or transgender, and, and I'm constantly making sure that I'm not assuming what their needs are. And I think that's uh, really important to bring in uh, m- community members to be um, part of the work that we're doing. Because if, if we if we're not doing that, we're not really being authentic in saying that this curriculum is designed to support their needs, um, and and that's something that I, I I try to remind myself of very frequently. That you know my expertise is a limited amount of expertise, um, but I have a an opportunity to bring in those with far greater lived experiences, who uh, can really enrich the work that we're doing.
4: I'm really interested in because you're talking about um, welcoming and, of course, inclusive environments interested in, um, hopefully, Renee, you could also um, respond to this question, is regarding language and identity, right, which is very important. At least I think so. Um, And I'm really curious to hear your insights on how important is understanding language and identity in clinical practice. And I would like to have uh, both of your suggestions on how healthcare professionals can be educated on properly communicating with um, queer youth in general, not just uh, gender conforming, but all of the uniqueness and diversities uh, that are part of the LGBTQ plus uh, community.
2: Yeah, I think one of the really beautiful things about language is it's a constantly evolving document. Right, like it's a it's a constantly evolving thing, and it's also one of the challenging things is like what you maybe learned in medical school, um, ten or even five years ago aren't the words that are being used now, um, especially by the hip, cool young people on the TikToks and Instagrams and things, <laughs> you know, like, um, well, and I say that to say, you know, I, so so you know, it making sure that we're asking open-ended questions of folks right and not afraid to ask those open-ended questions of folks because that's often what I see is providers get nervous about the language and then don't say anything at all and uh and trans and non-binary young people walk away from that experience thinking they didn't ask me because they're transphobic or because I created discomfort within them um when oftentimes it's it's the provider struggling with how to do it the right way. Um, So asking those open-ended questions uh, with, with loving affirmation, what is your gender? What is your sexual orientation? Um, And letting folks take the lead. Um, And if you don't understand, ask, like that's totally okay to say, tell me more about that. Or that's a new word for me. Can you help me understand it a little bit? Or that's a new, that's a new term. I'm going to go do some research on that Um, is, is really valid. It's okay to say you don't know, um, especially as young people are, are finding more precise, clear ways to create language, which ultimately builds community if there's a, a shared understanding in words. So I think it's it's a really important piece for providers as well.
3: I think Renee's points are, are really important and we, we have had the opportunity to work together with uh, a number of our students um so i feel like a lot of our our messaging is in sync um i think the one thing that's really interesting is i part of my work is i i teach in a doctoring course where we teach students how to do a medical interview how to talk with patients and when it comes to uh, topics such as sexuality um, sexual health behaviors um, uh, anything that part of your your social identity your social health the students are sometimes very hesitant because they are transitioning their role as a former layperson to a health professional. And and oftentimes, I will be observing students interacting with patients, and I'll say, well, I'm curious, why didn't you ask more questions? Or you asked a question, they answered yes, and then you just moved on. And they said, well, I, I didn't wanna be rude or impolite, and I didn't wanna make them uncomfortable. And, and this is a, always a great teaching point. I said, well, actually, the patient was quite comfortable. Um, but I think your discomfort is the barrier there. So, you know, I think this is something that for uh, young physicians in training, but even just a lot of health professionals in general, uh, we sometimes project onto others our own uh, anxieties, our fears, our discomforts, um, which is you know really quite unfortunate. So I think we all need to be more comfortable with who we are in our own sexuality, our own um Gender identity, how we express gender, um, and I think you know what's really exciting uh, nowadays is that there is far greater visibility and representation, thanks to social media like TikTok and Instagram and um, YouTube, and I think it, that's a wonderful uh, tool for helping to educate individuals to create greater awareness, and and I'm seeing that more with the the next generation of. Uh, medical students who are coming in there is a lot more uh interest in exploring these exploring these topics um, and I think what's really great is that even five ten years ago, our LGBT health curriculum focused almost exclusively on um you know a very narrow set it 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 tend, it, it tended to focus on uh gay men HIV and, and then it evolved into this idea of, um, actually, and it almost excluded uh, women in that whole conversation. There was a, a very narrow and, an, and sometimes very harmful effort to be inclusive. So it wasn't done with a, a lot of um, uh, respect towards marginalized communities. Uh, and then within the last five years, for several years, there was a, a real uh, strong emphasis on pronouns and and nowadays you know when we're uh preparing our lectures and our workshops um uh, it's great to be able to work with my colleagues and say you know what we don't need to focus as much on the pronouns because the students understand the pronouns um they're applying to medical school and um you know with a, a, a far better knowledge and appreciation for the the beautiful diversity of people's individuality um so that's been really rewarding for us but it's it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, we're, We still have a lot of work to do um, throughout the healthcare system. So uh, I'm really hopeful for how much progress we've made, but I, I feel that we really need to remain vigilant um, because even as we are making progress, what we have seen throughout our own country, even in the last year, uh, there's been a lot of harmful and I, I feel dangerous efforts um, at legislation that is uh, targeting um, people who are transgender, gender non-binary, uh, and in particular uh, transgender and gender non-binary youth and adolescents, um, which is, uh, you know, which has been really quite disheartening. And I see our role as healthcare professionals to really help educate the public to push back against those actions, um, so that. You know, our legislators, our policymakers, our school boards um, have the right information, so that it's it's not just gender affirming care, but gender affirming education, gender affirming social services policies, uh, gender affirming uh, sports. Um, you know, so there's there's a tremendous amount of work to be done, and it it's going to take everybody. Uh, you know, those we, we can't allow only members of the transgender and gender expansive community to do this work. We have an obligation to them, um, and and that includes you know, making sure they have a place at the table as we're we're moving forward with these conversations.
4: Awesome, uh, thank you, uh, Patrick and Renee. Um, I do have another uh, a question as to piggyback of what you're saying, and I know uh, my friend and colleague Amelia has um, a lot of uh, great questions connected to what I'm about to ask. But since we're talking about policy, uh, what are the um, health insurance challenges that um, you've experienced um, for queer individuals who are trans and in uh, the like, and are seeking gender reassignment surgery? Uh, you know, female to male or male to female or whatever um, that individual wants to identify as. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, the health insurance uh, challenges and the policies that are currently in place that um, has marginalized and really has created a lot of obstacles for this particular demographic?
2: Yeah, sure. No, I I really appreciate this question because I think health insurance is like a whole other uh, beast in terms of this conversation um, and, and much to, to Patrick's point you know we're seeing more and more legislation S- since January of, of this year of 2021 um, there's been more anti-trans youth legislation than ever before um, as like a direct backlash to more um, progressive uh, more progressive folks in, in positions of power right and, and so um, you know, we're seeing in—I want to say it was Arkansas. There's now legislation banning um, gender, any kind of gender-affirming medical care for folks under the age of 18, um, and that was made largely by politicians without information or science from uh, informed medical and mental health providers, and without trans and non-binary youth input at all. Um, so I think it is important to talk about the ways in which those those larger policies then directly influence what care is um, covered and not, or or how I put it, what care is like deemed worthy and what care is not. Um, and oftentimes those decisions are being made by cisgender or non-transgender people about medical care affecting trans people. Um, I will say in the state of New York um, where I'm based, Um, We are very fortunate um, in that not only does our public option, our Medicaid option, require um, that gender-affirming care be covered, but also the state of New York required that insurance based in the state, whether private or public, must cover gender-affirming medical care. Um, Now, what that means... Um, varies widely between insurance plans it was up to the insurance plans to decide what care is considered necessary gender-affirming care um, so so it, it varies a lot um, and it's usually focused on things that at least in my experience um, trans and non-binary folks um, aren't the most concerned about um, or maybe it, it's it's not equitable for all of the things that we're concerned about um so by that I mean um for example even in, in New York State's public option it's uh comparatively it is easier to receive surgery on genitalia than it is to receive like electrolysis or laser hair removal um, which is really essential not only in terms of affirming one's gender for folks who are trans feminine or trans women um, but also like a, a really profound safety measure for folks who are trying to access public spaces mm-hmm. right. um, in in a way where they might, they won't experience harassment or violence right um, So um, I think insurance companies, insurance coverage with this varies a lot around the country. Um, And you know, I think back to before this was covered in in 20, I want to say it was 2014 or 2015, um, folks were largely paying out of pocket for everything um, from from hormones to profoundly expensive surgeries that are tens of thousands of dollars um, to, you know, providers who are really doing this care um, for for under the table or for little to no compensation um, because it's the right thing to do and because we know it alleviates all sorts of profound mental health concerns. Um, I mean, trans folks, about half of trans folks have attempted suicide um, at least once in our lifetimes. And, And so I think you know, recognizing that this is actually like suicide prevention, this is job security, this is housing prevention, um, this is HIV prevention, right? Like really um, framing the conversation as to how this actually supports other health disparities in the long term. Um, I think the, the other thing that's important for us to consider too is um, prevention care and how that can that can actually get muddled in some of this too, so I'm thinking about trans masculine folks, trans men, um, who are seeking gynecological care um, or, or obstetrics care or, or wanting to become pregnant and um, how difficult it is for folks to access um, that care also um, and have insurance companies pay for it. Um, so I, yeah, I think insurance has, has quite a long way to go in terms of supporting the community.
1: So maybe I can um, kind of expand a little. Um, We know the health disparities among transgender youth occur at many levels, and we've talked about the insurance. Can you summarize some of the other health disparities that are noted among this group and how and where they occur?
3: Many of the experiences of uh, uh, trans and uh, gender non-binary youth, gender expansive youth, um, they are very similar to... Are cisgender youth, but it is um, exacerbated by intersectional uh, challenges. So when we think about um, you know some of the the harms that are being experienced, uh, bullying in schools or even online, um, you know we've we've mentioned self harm, uh, suicidal ideation, attempts at suicide, uh, feelings of depression and anxiety, um, and And sometimes this drives uh, very harmful destructive behaviors in self-medication misuse of prescription medications and uh, and can even lead to increased uh, risk for um, sexual harassment assault Um, and and the the thing i always like to remind our students our colleagues is that um, all these concerns that we have um, and the evidence that support it it is not due to them being gender expansive. It is not due to them being transgender or gender non-binary. It is due to the way in which they are treated, um, or the feelings of isolation, and and I think that's a a, a really important point um, that we need to constantly remind that the systemic barriers, the systemic bias and discrimination, is the is the cause of the harm, and that if we were providing Gender affirming care, we don't see um, these concerns as, uh, as as prevalent as we they, we know them to be. Um, and when I always talk about gender affirming care, I, I I like to remind people that it's not we're not talking exclusively about um, sex reassignment surgery or puberty blockers. Uh, we're talking about all kinds of care. Um, we're talking about coming in for the flu shot. And you're there for the flu shot and it's not that you have to uh, come out as transgender or gender non-binary or have to deal with um you know if that clinic or hospital or wherever you're at um, doesn't allow for an opportunity for you to use um your your the name that you go by versus what is on a legal document um, gender affirming care works at mitigating and removing those barriers so um so I appreciate that people are interested and they want to help, but sometimes, you know, people seek care for rather routine, mundane things. And um, if if we focus on only one aspect of their life, we what we are doing is actually creating um, a, a place of discomfort for them because their needs are not being met. They're they're coming in to get the flu shot. They're coming in uh, because they have a chest cold, um, or they're in the ER. You know, they have a twisted ankle. Um, they don't want to be asked about you know, are they having top surgery or bottom surgery? I mean, you know, we wouldn't behave in that way towards cisgender patients, but yet there is this very odd reaction. Um, so, you know, when I think about gender affirming care, it's it's about, you know, how do we care about people's real needs uh, in a way that's respectful uh, to them and, and treats them as uh, an individual and not a uh, a checklist of questions that should be asked in some way, so, um, so I I, I I do struggle with that because I feel it's um, sometimes well-intentioned health professionals make some missteps and they 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 don't realize um, the the harm that is being done, um, you know, in in the course of their work. So I I see that's this is part of the reason why it's important that we have these conversations that we're really engaging with our learners and our colleagues about you know what does it truly mean to be uh, affirming of one's uh, identity and sexuality and uh, you know treating them as a whole person.
2: So I, I yeah no I think that I think the, the one piece that I I also wanted to make sure that we that we touched on and like like very you know all all points well taken and really appreciated is also um, the role of the family um, in health outcomes for trans and non-binary young people. So um, this is Caitlin Ryan's work with the Family Acceptance Project. um, Talks a bit about, uh, you know, really, the the conclusion that that she came to in controlling for all these other variables is familial acceptance is like the single biggest predictor of how well a young person does in terms of substance use, in terms of risky sexual behavior, in terms of uh, depression, in terms of suicidality, right? Like that's the single biggest. Um, variable is is whether or not this person learns from their initial attachment figures that you're a person worthy of love and belonging Um, and once that's broken it it can be reinforced as as Patrick talked about in all these other places in in your school system and in your workplace and whether or not you have access to health insurance and whether or not you can be fired from your job and whether or not there's any protections for you walking down the street right like um, all of those then reinforce um, that that initial feeling and can then lead to um, self-harming and coping through substances and risk, risk-taking behavior and, and all of those things that we know um, exacerbate health disparities. Hmm.
4: Interesting. Interesting. Um, and to follow up uh, regarding uh, two very important dynamics you've talked about, uh, Renee and Patrick, mental health and familial support. And unfortunately, a growing demographic, other than veterans, unfortunately, regarding homeless, or I'd like to say houseless, because home is where the heart is, right, um, is a population of queer youth that are actually homeless or houseless. Uh, What are some programs that support and provide resources for this population? Because the main reason why they are homeless or houseless is because of the lack of family support. Um, in these particular households. Uh, So do you know of any programs or any type of support and resources for individuals that are facing this um, in their own personal journey regarding their identity?
2: Um, So we'll just re-shout out the Ackerman Institute's Gender and Families Project, which in order for young people to access. Um, groups and mental health services there, their primary caregivers also have to be a part of um, that program. And so I speak on this as like a a preventative measure. Um, I think also ACS, the the like sort of ch- uh, child support system uh, in New York City has gotten much better about trying to do interventions with um, folks' families of origin um, and them in order for that family to work towards supporting and affirming their LGBTQ young person um, so they're not removed from the home. Um, but I think also to your point, like to a certain extent the family has to want to participate in those things Um, and that's not always the case or that is often not the case Um, and so we do have a growing number of um, homeless or I like your point of houseless um lgbtq young people so of of the homeless youth population at least in new york city um i think the last stats that were done is any is about 40 percent are L- within the lgbtq community about half of those folks are trans and non-binary um and there are some really Incredible organizations. Um, I want to shout out the Ali Forney Center, who works exclusively with LGBTQ houseless youth, um, Bailey Houses, um, Streetworks, which um, the Bronx Health Collective, which is a part of, of Montefiore Medical Center, also helps support some of the medical care for folks at Streetworks, um, as well as the Hedrick Martin Institute, that has a terrific pantry and case management services for houseless young people. But I think also, like again, you know, this is, this is at a point where a young person is already um, displaced and experiencing a huge amount of trauma um, and how that trauma affects you and affects your your sense of worthiness throughout the rest of your life um, is is immense so um, I I think you know um, there you're right there are more preventative services um, that should be taking place for young people.
3: So some, one of the programs in our Bronx community that I, I've had the pleasure of working with uh, is Destination Tomorrow. And they've done some really uh, amazing work. Um, and, and Covenant House is another one that, um, you know it, they have locations in, in several cities. I think one of the challenges is that you know, in New York City, um, while we we certainly feel the, the pressure of under-resourced needs, Um, we are also incredibly fortunate to have many of these types of programs in existence Um, where my, my concern really um, uh, increases is for individuals living in suburban and rural communities um, where there is further isolation uh, and there is very limited support. Um, So it, it is, you know, It is a a blessing to be in in New York where you have these things. We also have a larger population that we're concerned about. Um, But, you know, the the challenge, I think, and to, to Renee's point about the familial support is that if we are able to engage with families early on and help them in this journey of understanding and education, that that preventative work. Can keep families intact. Can keep a safe environment for all members of the family, in, in particular um, our transgender and gender non-binary youth, um, so that their relationships remain uh, strong and loving, and that there isn't a um, a breakdown in communication and understanding that would necessitate, um, you know, this this separation. Um, you know, so the so the, their safety is our utmost priority. Um, but if we can do some good preventative work, um, you know, it would be uh, incredibly helpful. And I think it goes back to, you know, why is it important we have these conversations with health professionals? Um, it's for these very reasons that we are trying to be forward thinking and helping everyone. Um, I think, you know, many families, um, when they have a family member or a child who begins to Uh, express uh, gender diversity in some way there's a lot of confusion and they are going to turn to uh, maybe their pediatrician or a teacher or someone they trust and that first point of contact is incredibly important because it will either support and nurture them in this process or it may reinforce uh, ignorance or fear or bias Um, that's coming from a place of misunderstanding, so um, you know when I think about you know why should we dedicate this time? Because we're thinking long term, how can we improve the the safety for the community itself?
1: So can you suggest any steps for addressing um, health disparities and improve societal acceptance of um, gender diverse youth and adults? It feels like it. It must be an uphill battle with all of the divisiveness going on.
3: I think one of the challenges our our students and colleagues have is that they they support this, they understand this, but they they ask the same question. But what can I do? And and I, you know, part of our curriculum, we have begun to focus more on uh, social justice and advocacy in healthcare. And we've we've framed it to the students in in one of several ways. We said, well. The work that you do on an individual basis is incredibly important uh, and the interactions that you have with patients and their family members in the community, um, you know, does make a difference. Uh, you may not see that difference day to day, but over time it does. Uh, if, if you truly practice and believe in gender affirming care, it will uh, permeate throughout your workplace, throughout your clinical setting. I think that the next level, um, looking within our own institutions. You know do we work at an institution, a hospital, a clinic that is um, supporting and nurturing uh, an inclusive environment, or have we fallen short of our own goals? Um, and there are small steps, um, you know, making sure that our staff are well educated, um, you know looking at our electronic health records, uh, do we have a place that we can document things like, um, chosen names versus legal names um, you know correct uses of pronouns you know, are we are we taking those steps within our own institutions and then on a larger scale within our community that there's we we, we encourage our students we encourage our colleagues to be active participants in these community conversations um, you know whether that is um, you know contacting your local legislators and advocating Either for or against legislation that we know to be harmful um, uh, or protective of our youth, um, is it going to school board meetings and presenting a um, a, a different point of view than maybe there uh, the, is arising? You know, I've I've seen countless horrifying videos of school board meetings disregarding uh, efforts to protect our children and families in the pandemic, and and I, I i can't even imagine what it would be like to be a parent in a school district where uh these are my you know uh, we're all on the same team where we all care about our kids but yet people have very different points of view um so you know and that third step i think is something that i i i don't mm-hmm. encourage lightly i i know some people feel less comfortable being a public face in advocacy and doing those things and i i I encourage the students to think about what steps can they take, um, and uh, you know, it's social justice um, advocacy can be done in many different ways. But I think what we do on an individual basis is the most important, and I think we we all have a responsibility to be eth- ethical in our our, our practice, um, and then exploring how we can improve, um, you know, our own institutions, our organizations. And, and where people feel comfortable, getting out to the community and doing this work.
2: Um, I think to add to that, or maybe to create a, a framework for it, I think about this in terms of um, the, the framework that I use is the four eyes of oppression, right? Your individual, the interpersonal, uh, the institutional and the ideological. Um, and so what are you doing on all four of those levels? Uh, in order to to show up for for trans and non-binary folks, especially especially young people, right? Um, you know, as there are um, statewide policies banning gender-affirming care, what are you doing to vote some of those people out, um, or to advent? You know, to go in, and speak in these in these really public forums to to create community letters. Um, what are you doing within your institution to ensure that? Um, Everyone from, from patients to staff uh, are protected in that space, are affirmed in that space, are spoken about respectfully in that space, have access to care equitably in that space. Um, what are you doing when you speak to patients? I always introduce myself with my pronouns to patients because I think that's just like, you know, here's the conversation opener should that be something you want to talk about. Um, and then I think the the last piece that sometimes we can gloss over when when doing this work is like our own internal work, right? Like every single one of us, um, has been raised in a culture that has, um, biases or stereotypes about gender that we need to work on and we need to sit with for ourselves and reflect on, you know, what things have I been taught, um, or what things am I acting out that are actually not in the best service of my patients or myself? Um, and that's a, that's a constant and lifelong, uh, Or, I hope it's a constant and lifelong journey for folks.
4: No, that's good. That's good. I got to, like, can you repeat this again for our listeners? The four eyes, because I wrote this down. So, you said the four eyes are what again?
2: Uh, This is not mine. This is based on on another, on on someone else's work. But the the four eyes of oppression. I think if you Google this, you can easily pull up some really great graphics. But uh, internally, interpersonally, Um, institutionally, so institutions like, you know, churches and schools and um, community, and then ideologically, right? And I think of this in terms of like, not only our laws, but our laws are a reflection of our, like, culturally agreed upon morals and values, right? So um, how is our ideology influencing, uh, and how all these things connect with one another?
4: Oh, no, that, that's, that's really good. I appreciate you saying that, because um, it's definitely relevant, um, especially regarding, and I'm just hearing this word, you know, intersectionality between, um, you know, your particular thoughts and perspectives, Renee, as well as Patrick. Um, my question is, and this is another um, really interesting experience regarding gender-affirming youth, uh, what is your experience in dealing with intersex? youth and their parents choice on genitalia and identity this is a very um unique experience when a child is born with both genitalias and i know that sometimes um the majority of the time even though i know things have changed uh, the past uh, 10 years the parents make the choice for the child and and unfortunately a lot of times the the parents make or the parents depending on the familiar um um, demographic of that child's experience, make the wrong decision <laughs> based off of uh, what they think their child uh, should be, based off of uh, you know their idea of what their child should be. Um, but yeah, what 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 is your experience dealing with intersex youth um, and you know identity and choice? I'm just curious about that um, for you, Renee, as well as uh, Patrick.
2: Yeah, so so I appreciate you bringing up. Um intersex communities, because I think sometimes this can, like, get conflated with trans and non-binary identities. And there are some ways in which it is similar, and there are some ways in which it is very different. Um, so there are a lot of really great intersex advocacy organizations that I will make sure to pull up some names for. But um, I will say, so intersex is a, is also similar to transgender is, is an umbrella term or a term that's used to encompass a wide variety of medical um, conditions, although that that makes it sound pejorative, and that's that's not my intention. um, but everything from um variations in gender chromosomes to variations in hormones, um to variations in in genitalia with some folks being um, born with some sort of mix or combination uh, of of genitalia. Um, and so, Typically, the thing that when it comes to hormones and chromosomes, it seems like that's not much of what's being discussed with with minor children. Um, But what does seem to weigh as the more pressing concern, particularly for um, children's caregivers, is if their genitalia doesn't, quote, look like or isn't, quote, aesthetic to um, somebody who is a a cisgender man or a cisgender woman, or it looks different in some way. And I've had parents express concerns of, you know, well, what if I want other people to change my child's diaper or I take my child to daycare or, you know, how am I to answer my child's questions if their genitalia um, doesn't look like their peers? Um, and all of these, you know, I understand are, are concerns about safety, but that concern is not about your child so much as it's a concern about the people around your child, right? Um, and, and ensuring that, like all parents want, the people around your child um, are safe, loving, affirming people. Um, the the I think and I'm sure Patrick can speak more about this as well. But where the policy stands in terms of at least our institution and, and major um, medical body decision makers, American Academy of Pediatrics and and things like that, is um, as long as the child is able to use the restroom uh, safely, then their genitals should remain as they are so then that child can make a decision if they want to um, when that time comes um, and that their body remains something of autonomy to them um, rather than decisions of caregivers. Yeah,
3: so I, I think Renee brings up a, a really great point about, you know, we ask ourselves, so so why are these surgeries, these interventions being considered? Um in the majority of the the situations in which uh, a child would fall under this umbrella term of intersex, um, you know, there are some examples where um, you know due to a a, a hormone uh, deficiency or some functionality um, uh, in the urogenital area would require some type of intervention. But the majority of the the situations in which this occurs. Uh, you know, surgery is not medically indicated. So the question is, you know, why are we doing these things? And I think it's a, a source of um, uh, either shame or stigma or perceived stigma that would be experienced by the child. And, and I think what's you know, really quite important is that, you know, when we think about medical ethics and the, the right of uh, individuals to... Uh, Participate in an informed consent process. Well, obviously, a a child is not able to do that. So, you know, we we permit parents, guardians, caregivers to make decisions on behalf of their uh, their children um, because you know we assume them to be loving, committed individuals who have the best interests of that child at mind. But they have to do that with the right information. So you know, as healthcare professionals, we have an obligation to make sure they understand, you know, really what are all the options available to them. And, and I think what's been really, uh, uh interesting. And, I'm um, I've been uh, happy to see this happen is that they're, that we're having these conversations more openly and that these are not things that are done behind closed doors, um, that, you know, parents, um, are allowed to talk openly and more comfortably about these things and their children. Um, and that there is less pressure being applied to them. So, uh, and I think that is a direct correlation with our societal views being more broadened by gender expansiveness and diversity. Um, And if we are going to credit anybody for that, it is the community itself and those advocates um, that they have come forward to share their stories, to talk about the harms that were committed, even with the best of intentions, but harms were still committed. Um, and you know, over the last several years, several um, hospitals um, around the United States who had uh, frequently or regularly uh, offered these types of surgeries um, have uh, have listened to the community, listened to advocates, and have chosen to stop um, uh, offering these surgeries um, when, med- when medically not indicated uh, so that, you know, there is an opportunity for these families to get the support they need um, and to allow that child to grow and mature into adolescence uh, and adulthood, and then to give them the opportunity to make the decision for themselves based on the information that they should have. Uh, and I think that's been a really um, satisfying development um, because we are truly honoring, those children's opportunity to an open future, and allowing them to um, not inherit that shame or stigma that their parents may have had, may have been put put onto their parents or experienced by their parents, um, and it also allows uh, the family itself to um, you know not have greater division. You know, because um, you know, ultimately, we we I believe parents. Do have the best interests in mind for their children, but unless parents have the right information, it's very hard for them to make uh, well-informed choices. And uh, so, I think this has been a, a really, um, uh, a really good shift in how we're looking at uh, these conversations. And uh, and again, largely due to the hard work and the, um, the the willingness of members of the intersex community to you know, advocate for themselves and also for, you know, for you know, future children, so that they don't have to go through um, uh, the suffering and discrimination.
4: I
2: do just want to throw out there the name of the organization I was thinking of as InterACT, um, Act Advocates for Intersex Use. Um,
1: I do think it must be incredibly challenging for parents. Um, I, I think myself, I would find if I had um, an intersex child, I would find that incredibly hard. and. Um, you know I, I know some of these things are done in you know with the best will in the world as they say um i can see also how they could be very very harmful down the line um but i do want to acknowledge for parents it must be incredibly difficult um so the research really supports this idea of families supporting uh gender diverse youth and how that can really help them help to mitigate a lot of the mental health issues um the homelessness those types of problems that are clearly uh, very prevalent without the family support is there other research you'd like to see because again for some families making decisions about surgery and things they so the evidence is very limited um so this makes their decisions hard um so what type of research would you like to see that can really help parents uh, and as you say sort of change the conversation as well and you know within society as a whole um, what type of is there any research that you'd like to see being being done
2: I mean I'm really a big fan of like there's no such thing as too much research um <laughs> but I I think you know when we're considering um it, it sounds like like considering uh, long-term medical options for young people, um, I absolutely understand parents' hesitations and reservations um, about some of the, the long-term effects of um, not only hormone use, but but of surgical interventions and, and even to some extent, um, pubertal blockers. Um, so by that I mean, you know, without the introduction of uh, a um, what I call automatic puberty, like the puberty that would have happened without an intervention of hormones, um, are the surgeries that we have for, for perhaps, you know, genitalia surgery um, later down the line um, aren't as good as they should be um, in terms of of, of outcomes without the introduction of the, the automatic puberty. Um, that said, that onus is not on the transgender child or their families, that's on surgeons to do better by trans kids. Um, So I think more of an understanding of of how to do those procedures in order for someone to experience their gender congruently, um, physically, and and their their internal sense of gender for their entire lives is really necessary. Uh, I also see where families... Um, tend to get very worried is is around having biological children Um, and you know the responsibility of insurance companies to pay for reproductive endocrinology for um, everyone but also (laughs) for trans youth right I'm not sure if anybody like leaps into you know like gamete phrasing for the fun of it, um, I'm pretty sure it's like a careful, difficult, fraught decision for most people, um, but uh, to, to pay for that for everyone so it's an actually an accessible option. Um, for everyone and an equitable option for everyone um, and also perhaps more research because we don't have a good understanding as to what long-term um, hormone use does and and why some people can get pregnant or get other people pregnant um, and why some people cannot um, that said I also don't think there's enough research on diverse family creation um, especially for trans non-binary and queer communities even though we've been doing that for a real <laughs> long time because we're real creative like that um but but that you know this i i can absolutely understand why for a parent parenting is a really big priority um it makes sense um and and oftentimes ends up being a a cause for for concern um that said i think one of the most profound things a young person said to me was you know i could consider the option of parenting but only if i'm parenting as a father i can't parent as a mother and like that really hit me the understanding how you actually can't talk about parenting and family creation without talking about someone's affirmed gender so
3: uh, like renee i'm I'm a a big fan of research uh research and creating opportunities for research um I, i think healthcare professionals involved in these conversations with parents or guardians uh, or grandparents who may be involved in the the child's life, um, you know, we do have an obligation to in, ensure that they are properly educated with all the options available to them and the risks and benefits. And and when I have these conversations with health professionals, who, um, you know, I think there it's a very valid question to say, what are the long-term effects of Uh, pubertal blockers, or what are the long-term effects of cross-sex hormones? I said, those are all important questions, and the the research and the data will help us have greater confidence in our treatment interventions. But as we're having those conversations, we must always consider what are the implications or long-term consequences of not providing gender-affirming care. And what we've already known to be true is that um, these young people, these young adults, they do far worse. Um, They have greater harms committed. So to not do something, to delay something, is an action. And it can be a harmful action. So we always have to, if we're we're weighing weighing the risks and benefits of any type of intervention, you must always consider um, the implications of delay in treatment, delay in care. And, And that is... Uh, that always has to be part of the conversation. So, um, and I think where we have seen um, even in the last decade uh, a shift towards uh, greater interest and support for gender affirming care, um, the the preliminary data is you know is is very supportive of these efforts. And uh, and there may be anecdotal situations in which. Um, uh, an individual doesn't do as well and that's incredibly unfortunate. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, you know there's a lot of medical interventions uh, that are considered very safe, very successful, and it's not a hundred percent guarantee. So um, I think we always have to be, you know very mindful of the bigger picture and uh, and I think that's where the the research really helps support the work that we do so that when we are facing uh, legislative, Challenges towards the safety and security of the LGBT community, we can come back with evidence and not fear and ignorance or false assumptions.
0: Thank you for listening to another great conversation on Bioethics in the Margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung, our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.